Hi everyone, it's Britt, the Petite Polymath, and today we're going to be talking about a bit of a controversial book, The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. So we are day four into Black History Month, and there's been a lot of things that have happened. Um, so initially, Neil Young and then Joni Mitchell pulled their music from Spotify, um, kind of in protest of Joe Rogan and his, you know, um, COVID, quote-unquote, misinformation. And then this kind of uh, triggered a mass exodus of, um, of listeners and a pause for a lot of people who have their podcast on Spotify, Brene Brown being one of those, um, Roxane Gay being another, about what they were going to do about this, right? Um, I will talk about that in a little bit, but that's one thing. Then we have Whoopi Goldberg, who was suspended for two weeks, I believe, from The View after pushing back at the idea that the Holocaust was purely about race, saying that instead it was about man's inhumanity to man. And of course she was crucified for this. So I've been, I met someone a few, I guess about a month ago now, um, who I think on paper would appear to have different political leanings than I do. But out of curiosity, I investigated <clears throat> this person's perspectives and actually talked to them and realized that we actually probably see more eye to eye than I thought and that the world has just gone topsy-turvy, more so than the fact that our belief systems are different. Uh, it's more that um, we have entered an age um, of lack of conversation labeling of people and then abruptly saying, I don't have to think about them anymore. And, uh, and therefore missing out on opportunities to really, I think, understand where people are coming from. You know, I, for those who listen to my podcast, you know that I grew up, you know, evangelical Christian, but black in the South with a West Indian mother. And so pretty conservative. And I would venture to say I've probably moved more centrist over the years. Um, I have some left-leaning tendencies, but I'm also, I'm, I'm also pretty buttoned up in some ways as well. But a big thing about my view of the world is that it is first and foremost important to remember that the person that has an opinion across from you also is a human being, and they've probably been shaped by their own experiences and their exposures as well. And that's also while still having a very like bleeding heart when it comes to making sure that the most vulnerable people of society are protected and taken care of, right? And a lot of that is shaped by my, my religious worldview. And so there we are. So in this, you know, meeting of this person who has this different view of mine, I decided to do a little bit of investigation. So a weekend ago, I listened to Joe Rogan's interview with Jordan Peterson. Um, I had many thoughts. Joe Rogan didn't really bother me that much on that assessment. Now, granted, I've been seeing some things popping up about him saying some offensive things about black people, which, you know, I haven't listened to him enough to know. Um, he's in Austin, so, you know, if our paths ever cross at Soho House, Joe, I'm coming for you, because I want to I wanna understand, you know, why Planet of the Apes and being in a black neighborhood were synonymous to you, and why you ever thought you could say the N-word on the radio waves and think that wasn't going to come back and bite you in the rear end. But that's neither here nor there, okay? Uh, 
but yeah, he didn't offend me necessarily. He seemed actually interested in what Jordan Peterson was saying and pushing back at times when he didn't agree. Um, my opinion of Jordan Peterson, a smidge smug, um, a bit self-important. And I also think he oversimplified a lot of things, which is a perfect segue then to what I think about Douglas Murray. So Douglas Murray, British, white guy, gay. So, you know, for someone who doesn't think intersectionality exists, he lives at an intersection, for the record, which is hilarious to me. Um, and I think that that is why he thinks he can get away with writing the book he wrote, which is The Madness of Crowds. And he's pushing back at the identity politic that has kind of taken over our current world, right, in the postmodern age. I think there are four chapters, um, homosexuality, race, women or gender, and, you know, and kind of the concept of, of, of uh, trans, like, I don't know if transphobia was what he said or if he just said trans individuals and, and then, like, talked about how that's separate, of course, in the LGBTQ discourse um, and how we got there. So I can't speak to sexuality because I'm about as, um, you know, as cis as possible. So I, I don't have a lot of understanding and I don't want to land in a minefield of saying something that could be considered offensive, that would be better for conversations with people that I actually like know and love and do life with. But I can talk a lot about his views about gender and race, which is a place where Douglas Murray um, really can't talk because he seems to not understand the complexities of both of these things. Um, my assumption, well, actually not my assumption, my... Uh, what's the word, assessment is a better word, of how he thought about women and how he thinks about being black. Or, and I'm gonna say being black because I think that's really what he's pushing at. Although with the increase of Asian American violence and you know, anti-Semitism being on the rise, then maybe he would have something to say about this, these groups too. Um, he really kind of seems to be a bit uh, tone deaf about these experiences. So why people have visceral reactions to words like privilege? I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating that people can't seem to sit with the discomfort, that there could be something about them for which they have an advantage, and there are other places where they're disadvantaged. And pretty much every human has a little bit of both. That's what's so shocking. So I'm a black woman, but I come from a family that was functional and loving and supportive. That is my privilege. I also am petite. So I don't have like, you know, the downside of being in this world, an overweight woman, which is a place where there is also privilege. I don't think I'm too hard on the eyes. Also a place of privilege. Pretty intelligent, another place of privilege. Educated another place of privilege. I understand that full well. If you compared me to Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf and mute, but a white woman, let's overlap these, okay? Where we differ is our ethnicity, or at least how we look when we enter the world. And then I have the ability to interact with my world differently than her. 
So I have advantages that she didn't have, okay? Now, this should not be difficult for us to be able to understand. A child can understand this. And yet, a fully grown man can't seem to understand that this is the way the world works. The world is unfair, that humans stratify themselves in various hierarchies for a host of reasons. And the idea that, and I will now go back to Whoopi, and this idea of man's inhumanity to man being the ultimate umbrella under which every other evil that is practiced resides is key, okay? But brains like to put things in categories. So if I'm living out of scarcity, because I don't think there's enough resources to go around, because I'm insecure about losing power, because I'm afraid um, of what might happen to me, because I'm desperate, or because I'm just a jerk, because that can also happen, it might be a whole lot easier to start to categorize people based on what they look like. Skin tone, hair color, what their last name is, what, who they pray to, you know. Um, this is what humans do, we categorize, right? And then when these things become structural and we implement them, and then they have a mind of their own now, and I don't even have to be as a person actively perpetuating something, but I can set a system up that can then free run to self-select, I have created structural racism. This should not be rocket science. Now, I want you to tell me how in the world can we create systems intentionally with this default in them and then act like racism isn't real, and that people who are calling it out are crying wolf and being overly sensitive. I want you to tell me how that happens. Because I'm sorry, talent is everywhere. It exists in a slum in India. It exists in the ghetto in Baltimore. It exists in a jungle in the Amazon. It is on a mountain in the Himalayas. It's in a high rise in New York at the peak of all of the material access. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who your people are or what you look like. You can have talent. You can be wildly intelligent. And yet, we have these, these you know, the 1%, the people who have all the money and all the prestige. And what do they look like? Are you telling me the only people that have that amount of grit or ability are a bunch of middle-aged white men? I think not. The question then is not about where is the talent, it's where we're looking for it. And the idea that when you call this out and say, if we don't have a, a diverse reflection of what is out in the world, then we are clearly self-selecting in a biased way, then you are a fool and you don't understand how brains work. And that's what Douglas Murray does, is he seems to forget that this is the case. Now, I'm a black woman, and I'm a doctor. And if I had a dollar for the time that people don't think that I am old enough to do my job, because I look young, that I uh, look like I should be doing my job, and I compare this to my white male counterparts, I can tell you, I get way more, oh, oh, you're the doctor than they do. What do you think that is? 
I mean, I don't think necessarily the people who ask me these things are bigoted. I think they have a view of the world that is construed by their experience or by what they have seen, right? And so I think that what Douglas Murray fails to do in this book is to sit in the discomfort of systems are unfair and people have implemented them. And so now how do we try to not overcorrect into crazy land of then, you know, not letting people be able to flesh out their ideas and think through things and let them be flawed and human, but yet also help them walk along the way if they want to towards being better. So, you know, um, for example, his view on women, you know, I, I found it interesting. He, he kind of is, 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 um, scoffing of rape culture. And yet I find it interesting to think that, you know, who are you, dude, to scoff at something like that? Is your fear in your mind when you get out of the car and you walk someplace after dark that someone could come behind you and hold you up at knife point or gun point and cause you bodily harm in a sexually violent way? Probably not as a guy, but that's what women are told. We're told that we are... The, the responsible party for men's insatiable, um, you know, uh, desire to, to be physically with women. That's what we're told. That it's our responsibility in our dating relationships, our responsibility in how we come across to men. And like if men get misread it, then it's our fault. You know, every time um, a woman... Uh, says something about some inappropriate behavior. Everyone wants to ask her, well, what was she doing? When it should just be that the thing was wrong. And this is not to negate the, uh, the, the times where women lie. Women lie. And as I've said before, as a black woman, I understand very intimately that historically, black men have been, you know, uh, victim to the lies of women that caused them to hang from trees just for like looking at someone the wrong way, right? At the same time, as a woman, I understand that I have been told that the world is dangerous for me. And it, it always is, even when I'm past my, you know, my quote unquote, you know, biological prime. And those are complicated things to hold in your hand, which is why intersectionality is incredibly important to understand because it exists because we are multitudes. That's what we are as people. And if you can't have that conversation, then you can't even like seek to understand what we're doing here. Um, Whoopi Goldberg and the issue with the Holocaust. I, I waxed very poetic on my Instagram account earlier today about how we need to first lean into the terrifying reality that evil is inside of us, that possibility. And that until we do that and get rid of the self-righteousness we have, we can't have conversations about how these things occur. How do genocides happen? You know, how do we get to a place where millions of people are gassed and people let that happen? How do we get to a place where a whole economic system was based on the backs of people who looked like who looked differently from someone else and it was justified in churches and in their governmental writings how do we get to a place where we seem to be completely unbothered 
that people who are making our stuff don't get a living wage, aren't protected? How do we get to a place where children are held in, in, you know, in the equivalent of prisons because they're trying to get to a better life? How do we get there? It's a gradual process of dehumanization. And it, it behooves us, regardless of what side of the political spectrum we're on, and particularly because we call this out on the right all the time, but on the left as well, we have got to start listening to people. We have got to start leading with curiosity and with care and not with immediate disregard for someone's humanity, whether they're vaccinated or not, whether they're pro-life or pro-choice or not, whether they're going to a church or not, who they voted for being of no consequence. If we can't start to realize we are all human and this is only the only home we've got, we are up a creek. And I feel like what Douglas Murray is doing is, if anything, he's fanning the flames of more division as opposed to seeking to meet people in a place and say, I want to meet you where you are. And I understand that you've overcorrected from over here and, like, we, got, we can't do this. We have got to be able to sit in, this, in the middle of this, acknowledge our shortcomings, and that we're not where we ought to be now by a long shot but that we can get there by care and mutual respect and agreeing to disagree at times. One last thing I want to say is this idea of free speech, right? Nothing is free, y'all. And by free, I mean without consequence. Every choice to say or not say something has a consequence. When we say free speech, what we mean is that you can't, you know, go to jail for it or die. But, like, can you be, quote-unquote, canceled by the culture for something you say? Apparently so. Can you lose your job? Yes, you can. Can people think you're a horrible person? Or a coward? Yes, they can. This is the world we live in. And it's best to lead with less words than unthought or unconsidered multiple ones, right? So be, be careful with what you're saying and seek to understand what someone else is saying. Something for my own self that I'm learning is, is to try to um, avoid the, the so easy knee-jerk reaction of, um, of the soundbite without hearing the whole thing in context, without reading the whole book without looking at, as my dear friend would say, the primary sources, right? And I just can't say enough being curious. Because when you're curious, you look for the truth. And the truth is the truth regardless of who says it. Even if, oh my goodness, shockingly, someone you don't even like says the truth, the truth is the truth. And that's what the quest should be, is for that. This was Brit Stone, the Petite Polymath, and so I bid you adieu. Take care, y'all. <laughs>